We are going to be continuing in our series, Who Do You Say That I Am? This is an exploration of the I Am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And today we are considering two of those statements which really are meant to be combined, and that is, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. And so I want to begin with, uh, if we can get the first slide up, with a couple verses, uh, one from Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, and one from the prophet Isaiah. Now, here's the thing with both of these passages is that God, through the prophets, is condemning the spiritual leaders uh, of the nation of Israel for not caring for his flock, which is Israel. And through that condemnation, he also gives forth a promise. A promise that he will provide a shepherd that is worthy. And look what it says in Ezekiel 34, verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, speaking of the coming Messiah. Again, in Isaiah 40, verses 10 through 11, it says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. Now I want you to notice, the first verse speaks to this human person coming, the Messiah. The second says it's God himself. And this is what we have in Jesus, the God-man. God enough to save us. Man enough that we can relate to him. And he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now the power of these passages speak to this beautiful reality, this metaphor that is often used in Scripture of God or Jesus as a shepherd and his people as a flock. And the question that we have to begin with is this question of why do we need a shepherd? I mean, we are a fiercely independent people. And how are we really like sheep? You know, traditionally, you'll often hear from the pulpit that we're like sheep because sheep are dumb. But that is a massive oversimplification and even not scientifically true. And so I think it'd be good to begin with this reality of why we, we need a shepherd. And I think I would just say Jesus' own word, the, the words that are spoken of Jesus in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, when it says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So how are we? sheep without a shepherd how why do we need a shepherd well the best way to answer that question is to begin by asking how are we actually like sheep now there was a study in the bbc uh, that was reported by the bbc uh, given by this scientist named keith kendrick and what they discovered is that sheep are not actually dumb they were actually quite intelligent uh, they have they have an impressive memory and recognition skills so how is Jesus, or why does God choose to use this particular metaphor, the metaphor of the shepherd and sheep? Now it's true, Abraham was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. I mean, there's lots of characters in the Old Testament. This was a, a common 
a, a common occupation in ancient Israel, but there, there's something more to it than that. And let me just give you some actual facts about sheep that show how close the analogy really is. First of all, like us, they need one another, but don't particularly like each other. It's true, sheep band together and pretty much stay together when grazing, but this isn't because they particularly like each other. They're, they're social animals, but they stay together primarily for protection. They can build friendships. This is interesting. They can stick up for one another in fights, and I think this is quite subjective, and I'm not sure how scientific this scientist is in this statement, but it says that they feel sad when their friends are sent to slaughter. <laughs> Like us, their young are more prone to risk-taking. It's true that lambs love to climb, and they are naturally curious of their surroundings. This curiosity can often lead, according to one, many barnyard accidents. Like much of modern society today, especially due to the domestication of life, it is doubtful they could ever survive in the wild. And that is also quite true. In fact, once I was, <laughs> I was in Iceland on a trip with, with a band. I was playing a concert there, and we went on this, this trip out into the, the tundra. I mean, it's just this beautiful landscape. And we were out in the middle of nowhere, hours away from Reykjavik, hours away from any town that I knew of. And as we went out on this hike, we came across this cave in the middle of nowhere. And of course, the first thing that I thought was Viking treasures. And so we went into this cave, and, and as we go into the dark of this cave in the middle of nowhere in Iceland, we hear a sound at the back of the cave in the dark. And I was like, what? I'm like, are there, are there predators here? And he's like, there's no predators in Iceland. I'm like, what's back there? And he's like, I don't know, the Icelandic guy that was with us. And we got a little bit further in, and all of a sudden there was a scurrying, and out comes the mangiest, nastiest looking sheep I've ever seen in my life. It was like emaciated thin, and it was, it was all dirty, and its hair was too long. And I'm like, are there wild sheep here? And he's like, no, that doesn't exist. He, he belongs to someone. And I was like, how fascinating. How fascinating indeed. It's very clear that if he does not return to his owner, he will not survive in the current condition that he was in. And that's actually true. When sheep, if sheep get away from their shepherd, because they are so domesticated, disease or predator is likely to take them down. Like us, they are prone to deep anxiety. Sheep are frightened by sudden loud noises, like my wife, such as yelling or barking, which I, I don't bark, but I do seem to yell even when I'm talking. Uh, in response to loud noises and unnatural sh- sounds, sheep become extremely nervous and difficult to handle. Uh, to minimize stress, this is so fascinating, the shepherd should speak in a quiet, calm voice. Isn't that line up so beautifully with Scripture? The still, soft voice of God, the gentle voice of Jesus. Like us, they hide pain. This is a really interesting one. A sheep is much less likely to show obvious signs of pain than a domestic dog. And this is believed to be because signs of weakness make them vulnerable. We are so much like that. 
We don't want to be vulnerable, and therefore we often hide our pain. Like us, their bent toward, toward following can lead them into dangerous places. When one sheep moves, the rest will follow. And even if it does not seem to be a good idea, the flocking and following instinct of sheep and humans, I would argue, is so strong that it caused the death of 400 sheep in 2006 in Turkey. The sheep plunged to their death after one of the sheep tried to cross a 15 meter deep ravine and the rest of the flock followed. Now, when I think about that and I think about Jesus' illustration, that he would leave the 99 to go find the one, all of a sudden a new meaning kind of came to mind. That if he doesn't go find the one, the 99 are going to leave and follow the one that's put himself at risk. This is a, a, a fascinating picture of the reality of our own need for guidance, for protection, for something bigger than ourselves. And like us, and this is the most interesting fact, they are also, and not even as much so, one of the most destructive creatures on the planet. Take that for good measure. And then the, the final one that I thought was good, but just, I'll just throw it in for extra. It says, never turn your back on a ram. And never leave them with children or the elderly. I just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> I just read it on a site. They're extremely, they're extremely nasty. It says, don't pet their head because they think you're challenging them. And I've met people like that as well. Um, <laughs> so our need for a shepherd speaks to the fact that we are a lot like sheep. And we, are, we have been taught to be self-confident, to be independent, to, to, uh, to flout our supposed freedom when in actuality the worst master you will ever face is inevitably yourself. And this is why the gospel is such good news. It's not good news about us. It's good news about a God who loves us in spite of us. And so here we see the reality is that God makes a promise that He is going to send one shepherd who will shepherd His flock, who will care for His sheep. And we need a shepherd because we are very much like sheep. And there are three things that Jesus comes to reveal in this powerful passage in John chapter 10. And that is the Good Shepherd's invitation, the Good Shepherd's sacrifice, and finally, the Good Shepherd's assurance. But let's begin with the Good Shepherd's invitation. In John chapter 10, verses 7 through 10, Jesus says this. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's, it's, it's interesting to me that that passage is often applied to the devil, but that's not the context of the Scripture. Jesus is dealing with the false teachers. And just as the verse I just read in Mark, it says Jesus saw the crowds, and these crowds were regular attenders of the temple, regularly trying to keep the law that they couldn't keep, um, regularly feeling the guilt that were being piled on them by a group of religious leaders who preferred their position and their wealth 
at the expense of the hurting, broken people. And this is why Jesus said they were like sheep without a shepherd because those men weren't functioning like shepherds. They were functioning like thieves. And he says what they're actually doing is they are stealing, they are killing, and they are destroying my people. They are leaving the world without hope. And so Jesus says, I am the door. I am the door. The thieves, in short, are always preachers, teachers, and leaders, even to this day, in the church, who have motivations and causes other or more important than the person of Jesus. And that's why I said if we aren't talking about Jesus, we aren't functioning as Christians because the very word Christian is Christ in you. It's the reality is that our faith is not based upon what Jesus taught as much as it is based upon what Jesus has accomplished. It is a reality that has happened outside of us for us and it is through our dependence upon not his teachings but upon his personhood that we actually find our entrance but the world is continually preaching a different kind of door and it's really less like a door and a lot more like a ladder if you do these things god will accept you and sadly, that kind of reality is continually presented within the church as well. We tell people that are broken in their sin that Jesus has done everything for them. We invite them to put their trust in Him. We get them into the church and then we give them a new, more exhausting ladder to climb. When the Good Shepherd's invitation is a continual invitation to all of us who recognize the impossibility of that climb. Because the ladder that Jacob saw that went from heaven to earth in his vision, and the angels ascending and descending upon that ladder, that is the only time that is mentioned in the Scripture. And when it is referenced by Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus says there is no more ladder because he says this, I tell you this, greater things will you see because you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The Gospel is good news because it's down to earth. It's God come to us into our brokenness. And so Jesus says, I am the door. What is the door? Christ. What is Christ? He is the truth. Who opens the door? He who guides us into all truth. And who is that? If you look at the upper room discourse at the close of John, Jesus said, I will send to you another helper, the Spirit of truth. He will guide you into all truth. He will show you the way. And Jesus even says later, as we will consider in one of his final statements, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We can never separate what we believe from the very person of Christ himself. For it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The faith that I put in Christ is the faith that allows Christ to be in me and for me what I cannot be for myself. The simple yes to Jesus is not based upon anything you have done. In fact, you like the sheep are absolutely incapable of caring for yourself in any sort of spiritual way. You will never earn your way into an eternity of rest. You will not experience the joy that you were intended for until you put your trust in the one who is the door. And that is why we must, as Christians, continue to unapologetically declare the exclusivity of Jesus' claims. There is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved. 
And the offensiveness of that statement is also the key to entering into the vastness of God's love. And so this is the question then that we have. Because Jesus says this, He says, all who came before Me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Notice, when the false gospel goes forth, when false teachings go forth, people listen for a little bit because we're always hungry for the new thing, aren't we? But when the new thing doesn't provide any kind of satisfaction, what happens? We just move to the next new thing. And that's why we're not actually listening to these, to these false shepherds in, in, in any sort of real way. We, we're, more, we're more like fads. We treat the, the proclaimers of new truth like celebrities. They come and they go. Unless you're, as my wife says, like Brad Pitt, who seems to be aging like fine wine. He really is. It's weird. <laughs> I've not seen another 55-year-old that looks that good. Quite jealous. Life goals. What then does Jesus offer? He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, I love this, he will be saved. As a sheep, we need a protector. We need a shepherd. And he says, I not only am the shepherd, but I am the entrance to your safety. I am, I am your security. The invitation that Jesus puts forth to us is an invitation to come out of the weariness of self-effort and to accept the complete, totally finished work that He has achieved for us. Stop trying to save yourself. It's exhausting. The famous Preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once, once posed a, a question to his congregation. He said, how many of you are trying harder to be the Christian you know you ought to be? And the moment a bunch of hands rose up, he goes, you don't know what it means to be a Christian then. It's never about trying harder. It's about simply receiving by faith that which has already been accomplished for us. And he says, look what you'll have. He will be saved I came to seek and save that which is what? Lost. Many of us are like that mangy sheep I came across in the cave. Not, not nearly as attractive as we could be quite dirty. Really, that sheep re- really represents much of what we call Portland, doesn't it? <laughs> dirty but cool. You know, it's sad that that dirty component is really diminishing in the city as it changes, and I, I grieve it often. I remember the early days of Door of Hope where the annex did have this strange yet familiar combination of patchouli and B.O. that was, I felt like we were really doing gospel work. And <laughs> you guys are all way too cleaned up now. Uh, it's, it's amazing what parenting does. Uh, so look what he says. He says, you will be saved. But notice, it's not about just being saved from the world. It's being saved from ourselves. It's being born again. It's not, a, it's not a negation. It's a rebirth. It's an absolutely new thing altogether. It's a transformation that actually infuses us with the very life of that Good Shepherd that actually allows us to then go into the world, not hide ourselves from it. That's why Jesus says He will be saved and He will go in and out and find pasture. Isn't that interesting? Now, I want you to think about that. That the pen is never the place, at least in the ancient world, where the sheep found their food. 
The pen was a place of where they found their protection, the invitation that we get is to come in, find our salvation, but in order to actually grow as the sheep of the good shepherd, we actually have to go out into the world with him. He's not, he's not a shepherd who is static, and he knows his sheep will starve if they try to stay in the pen. This is why he continuously leads us back out into the world. And this is why, and I want to just state this really clearly, in an age in which the church is turning more and more inwardly upon itself and pre- preaching what I would argue is more of a Neoplatonism mysticism. And all I mean by that is, it, is that the, the goal often heard in the church today is your own personal journey with Jesus, inward and upward, a spiritual ascent toward enlightenment and oneness with God when in reality that is never found in the New Testament. That our oneness with Christ is found only as we go down into His death and live in His resurrection life as we are poured out for His world. It's the opposite of mysticism. But look at the, look at the rise and the popularity of the ancient mystics. One of the reasons that many of the mystics were declared by ch- the church fathers throughout its history as ultimately heretical, although the church still found itself enamored with many of their intimate experiences, is that those intimate experiences were far more based on subjective experience than it was on any sort of biblical foundation. The Spirit became more important than the Word, when what we need as a church is that strong balance of Word and Spirit, and the mystical experience, which I'm all for, intimacy with Christ, oneness with Christ, but it only comes as we enter into Christ's mission, which is a witness to the lost world. If you make it about you and Jesus, you just miss the gospel. Your closeness to Christ is dependent upon your willingness to be poured out for His mission. Your salvation is based upon what He has done for you only. And it is a yes to that. But our growth is our ability to enter then into the world with that sure foundation. This is why Luther said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And I would argue that it is that one of the great enemies of the church is isolation. But one is, what is one of the biggest things being preached in churches right now? The need for continuous solitude. Solitude is good only if it moves us back into service of the world. Jesus may have spent the night alone with His Father, but it was only so that He can then be poured out again for His people. And I think that this is one of those realities in which we see that the shepherd's invitation is to come in so that we can be pushed right back out. And this is where we find our abundant life. An abundant life. I love the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. He who wants to protect his own life loses it. He who loses his life for my name's sake finds it. Our abundant life is found as our life is poured out for Christ and for neighbor. That's my thoughts on that. Secondly, the good shepherd's sacrifice. And I would just say in regards to that invitation, that is the very thing that Jesus says in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary. Weary of that desire to continually climb a ladder you can't climb. I will give you rest, but then what is it immediate? How is the rest found? By taking his yoke upon us. What is the purpose of a yoke? To work but it's to work without excruciating effort. A yoke that is well made for an ox means it distributes the load in such a way that the ox can do it without being fried. (laughs) And so, his rest is actually found 
as we go with Him who is our rest into His world empowered by His Spirit. Which speaks then to this whole reality and the foundation which is the, was Jesus as the Good Shepherd and His sacrifice. I am the Good Shepherd, He says. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. He who is hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own, and my own knows me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Notice how many times he says this. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I never came. Are you listening to me, crowd, is what he's saying. I never came just for Israel. You were meant to be a conduit by which you were to declare to the world a loving, merciful, gracious Father, but instead you turned inward upon yourself. You made it about you, and you lost the heart of God. In doing so, I have more that are outside of Israel. And this is the whole purpose of why I've come, is what he's saying. And I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me. Look at that. The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I think we often think when we hear that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, that we can create this faulty theology that Jesus is here to mediate between rebellious kids and angry dad. And we need to know that we, we, we can't do that to God, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit without doing damage uh, to our understanding of who God is. The Son is functioning in obedience to the Father. When the Son identified with human sinfulness in His baptism, the heavens opened up and the Father speaks, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. In other words, I am pleased with My Son's identification with sinful humanity. It was the Father, Son, and Spirit's plan from before the foundation of the world, which isn't a time statement, it's a God statement. There was a decision made in God that humanity would be sought and saved by God's work on our behalf. Salvation worked out for all, but not all will be saved because there is a freedom that comes, enough freedom to say yes or no to God's yes over us as the Spirit reveals the truth of who Jesus is. And this is why Jesus says, listen, the false teachers, the thieves that come, they preach a gospel that's based upon what benefits them. It's about their egos. It's about their pocketbooks. It's about their agenda. But if they're not preaching me, they are a thief. And the sheep will not ultimately listen to them. You know what's fascinating is when we look at the history of church and we actually look at even heresies that crept in and brought damage or destruction to different movements. And if you want to have your mind around the nature of, of, of human beings as sheep to drift from their shepherd, all we have to look at is any mainline denomination in church history and see how far it's moved often from its founder. And often those 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 missing the voice of the Savior, it doesn't just come overnight. It's something often we don't even see it at first. It happens over time slowly. And it becomes this little whittling away at the authority of who God has revealed Himself to be at Scripture. It's the beginning to question with things that we think actually aren't essential that ultimately 
finds itself weaving its way into those things that have always been historically held by the church as essential, and it's happening all around us right now. I mean, the Scripture declared, it says, and in those last days, there will be many who will rise up basically proclaiming to be teachers of the truth when in actuality they are thieves who have come to manipulate. And what's most terrifying about wolves and thieves is they're not even realizing very often that they're doing it. Many times they think that their agenda is totally good, which actually makes them even more dangerous. But notice when the hired hand cares nothing for the sheep, the wolf can come in and snatch them. And so the analogies becomes manifold. And the death of a community of faith can happen very quickly when we stop being able to discern what the shepherd's voice even is. You notice what he says here is Jesus' mission is the laying down of his life for his sheep. It's, it's a putting himself at risk. And this shows us the difference between many of the threads that we find current in American evangelicalism today, which is moving more and more toward an eros spirituality rather than an agape spirituality. And what I mean by that is very, is very specific. Eros love, that Greek concept of love, is, is a love that seeks perfection and fulfillment of the self in union with God. It is... It is, a, it is a love that is self-referential. But agape love is a self-sacrificing love for the good of the other. And the love that God has revealed toward us is a love that pours itself out for the sinner. It says when we were enemies with God, when we were dead in our sin, Jesus Christ died for us. This is the good news of the Gospel. Not that you are lovable, but that God is love. And here we find this powerful reality that Jesus' mission is laying down His life for His sheep. And we recognize what Jesus means by laying down is the voluntary death on the cross. His single greatest gift to the world. Which is why we can never afford to simply talk about Jesus and what He taught. We have to talk about what He did. This is why Paul says, I have determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because the love of God that is revealed through the cross is a costly love. It shows us what it costs God to bring about our free gift. It may be free to us, but it cost Him His Son. How powerful is that? It is pure gift. The one-way love of God. Ephesians 5.2 Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. Costly. It is undeserved. In Romans 5, Christ died for the ungodly. We are loved not necessarily lovable. In fact, we probably are not very lovable. And when I talk about the, the nature of sin and its impact upon, upon our humanity, I'm not saying that there is no dignity in humanity because we are made in the image of God and that image of God is there, but it is deeply marred. What I mean is that sin has infiltrated every arena of human existence so that even as born-again believers, the best we do empowered by the Spirit is still ultimately mixture, which is why we need to continually cast ourselves upon the grace of Jesus. I can't preach, no matter how challenging, convicting I am being, I can't preach without that little voice in the back of my head saying, I wonder why Wesley's not smiling at me right now. That's the reality. That's the mixture that's at play. But the fact is, is that the gospel in the good news of Jesus is that Jesus laid down His life for that very thing. That I am forgiven because of Him. And I confess those weaknesses to remind myself 
that it is because of what He has done for me, not what I do for Him, that my standing is secure. I know my own. My own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Notice that this saving work of Christ leads to some very powerful realities, which is that we become known and know. This is eternal life, Jesus said, that they may know You, the living God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. The Gospel becomes a revelation of the Good Shepherd's saving work, that sacrificial work on our behalf. And this is why we don't just proclaim Christ or His teachings. We proclaim, we proclaim what He did and how He fulfilled all that is necessary. He did said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And this is why we are told in Romans 10 that He is the end of the law. All human effort when it comes to the realities of our salvation has been eradicated and it becomes a gift of grace. But why is it so hard to accept? Because it is very difficult for us to truly believe that there is nothing in us that makes us worth saving. He saves us because it is His nature to do so because He is love toward us. But when we realize that our performance our personalities, no matter how, if you're like me, you know, I always say that people really like me for about three months. Uh, my intensity, I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm annoying Jesus or wearing him out. He knew what he was doing when he made me. And he's aware of the mixture that I am. And so I cast myself in dependence upon him as the good, loving God who, whatever, you made me. I'm going to let you be responsible for me. When I actually function in that way, it actually, that's what inspires me to actually move out into his world. That's what inspires me toward Christian growth. That's what inspires me toward the word and toward prayer and all of the other disciplines is because I, in spite of all of that brokenness, can still be a conduit by which Jesus brings that same good news to a lost world. That's the power of the gospel. And it ends in this beautiful reality. What does he say? He says, And I have other sheep, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so they will be one flock, because I lay down my life that, they may, that I may take it up again. And this is the beauty of what God has done for us, that God loved us so much that He would not settle merely to save us from sin and give us forgiveness, but He came to literally penetrate the core of our sinful being and causes us by His Spirit to be born again as His children. To give us something of His own character so that we have a family likeness to Him. And this is how He can say that my sheep hear my voice and they know me, and I know them by name. Which brings me to the Good Shepherd's assurance in closing. In verses 27-30, through it says, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about Me, but you do not believe because you are not among My sheep. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. Notice that. They hear My voice. I know them. What was Jesus' own words in Matthew 7? He says, There will be many that come to Me in the last day, in that judgment day when all of creation will stand before God and give an account. And that question, that reality of who is His and who is not. And he says that many will say, didn't I do this? And they refer to Him as Lord, which shows that there is some kind of familiarity. But their basis of familiarity is not based upon being known and knowing, but it was based upon 
what they viewed as some sort of effective ministry. It wasn't based upon the gospel. It was based upon their own efforts. And they said, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? I mean, they were talking about about serving the world and doing supernatural acts. And Jesus never denies that they did any of those things. But he says the most terrifying thing that I can find in Scripture, which is, and I will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. That the goal of the gospel is to bring the saving life of Christ into our lives in such a way by the Holy Spirit that the new birth actually gives us the key and the ability to now actually move in intimacy with Christ as we move into His mission. Because notice, he says this. He says, I like this, what he says. He goes, they hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Notice, he's going somewhere. In order to actually hear the Savior's voice, you have to go where He's going. And what does it say then? I give them eternal life and they will never perish. So this passage of profound, what the Reformation uh, simply called as eternal security, it wasn't just preached in the Reformation, it was held by many of the early church fathers as well. Uh, there, there, there are alternate views. Some people think you can lose your salvation. I, I have never heard of a phrase being born again, again. Um, and I just refuse to believe it because that sounds dumb. That's why I don't believe it. No, I, I think that the Scripture holds to the fact that if it's based upon what Jesus has done totally for us, it can never be based upon what we have done. If it's temporary, it's not eternal. And the reality is, is that, well, then what do you do with Christians who have truly put their faith in Christ and then walked away from their faith? I think that the Gospel can set us free, but it's a terrible freedom that we can abuse that can actually bring a lack of effectiveness, a lack of reality, and a lack of any sort of spiritual fruit in our lives here. And we can end up like the person in 1 Corinthians 3 whose works are tested by fire and all of them burn up and they escape the flames just barely, smelling like smoke for the rest of eternity. She'll be my dad, I'll what? <laughs> but I'm, I don't care as long as he's there. I think that the fact is, is that we, we struggle with that. Now, is it true that people can be deceived in thinking that they're okay with God? Of course. There can be people that haven't been born again. But the fact is, is that there is the possibility, my point, is there is the possibility of assurance. From heaven's side, if one has been truly born again, the assurance is there. But from our side, the assurance only comes if we actually stay with the one who is our salvation, which means to abide in Christ, make our home with Christ. When he sets us free, he doesn't set us free so we go in the opposite direction and turn out like the mangy sheep who still have an owner somewhere. No, the freedom is that we might now, under the power of the Spirit, in a daily yieldedness to King Jesus, begin to follow Him because of what He has done for us. That sure foundation, I'm not working toward victory, I'm working from it, and I'm moving with it because He is my victory, He is my salvation, and He is my King. So how do I hear His voice? How do I know Him? How do I follow Him? I give them eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you. So the ability that the Holy Spirit gives to us as we yield to King Jesus is the ability to know and be known. But that intimacy, as I said, is not an inward journey toward oneness with God. To be born again, you have become one with the King. Now move into His mission. He's going somewhere. It says, do not use your freedom to serve the flesh is what we're warned in Scripture. 
And so this is the power of what it means. And this is where I want to just tell you that first of all, what does it mean to hear his voice? Are we looking for the supernatural experience? That can come. I've had moments where God has broken through into my reality in a way that I cannot explain on, on any basic rational level where there has been an overwhelming sense of his love. And it does say that the Holy Spirit has been poured out in our hearts. It pours the love of God out into our hearts. The love from God toward us and the ability to love like God toward others and toward God. But, but there, is, there is also this reality, as Luther said, he said, I don't care if God himself spoke to me, if he proclaimed anything other than what has been, what has been accomplished in Jesus as revealed in the Scriptures, I refuse to listen to him. Because Jesus is the final word. And I think that here's the issue that we have come up against. Because Luke 8, 18 says, Take care then how you hear. And there are a lot of voices. And sheep are filled with anxiety from loud noises. And our world is filled with loud noises. And we are an anxious people. And the world is driven by anxiety because it is sheep without a shepherd. And we have got to bring the peace of King Jesus and His Gospel to that world. And it's when we begin to become conduits of that that we begin to hear His voice because that is what He has kept us here for. And I want us to hear this. 2 Timothy 4, verses 2-4. through For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears... They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Do you know how many times Paul says that people within the church will often fall into the trappings of listening to myths rather than the gospel? This is the great work of the enemy. As Luther said, Satan's greatest work in the church is to turn the gospel into law. To present a gospel that's without the cross or to present the cross plus a bunch of works. But there are all kinds of false teachings right now because we are dealing with a time where the pressure of culture is so great that we are feeling that pressure and we are collapsed. Church leaders all over the U.S. right now are collapsing under the pressure of culture to rethink the Scriptures to be less offensive. And so now what the church has become in a city like Portland is how can we best serve the city and be friends with the city? It says in Scripture, pray for all those in leadership that you might live a peaceful life. Absolutely. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. It says that in Jeremiah. But Jesus said, in this world you will have persecution and you cannot be a witness to the gospel and not expect to become a laughingstock and mocked and you will suffer if you pursue godliness. And so what the church has done is how can we remove the suffering to keep people in the pews? Because if the people leave the pews, then we as leaders don't get our paychecks. Man, I want us to be like the Apostle Paul. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. I like what P.T. Forza said a hundred years ago. He says, the world is past saving by philanthropists. What it needs is spirit-filled evangelists. A people that declare from the rooftop what we have heard in the stillness of our time with our King. I'll just close with this simple statement. 
Because we're told that we are held in a double grasp of son and father. That he, Jesus is the door. That he is the good shepherd. And that those who come in through him will find eternal life. And that eternal life is secure. But are we being like the sheep that stay close to the king? Or are we the one that drifts? And just know this, that sheep by their nature follow other sheep. And if you are walking away from the authority of Scripture and away from King Jesus, don't think you're doing that in a vacuum. The reality is is that you have the power to lead others astray as well. And this is why Paul says we have to care as a community about our, our pursuit of King Jesus. We need to be a community that is attuned to the Holy Spirit and given to the Scripture because word without spirit is dead orthodoxy. Spirit without word is, is purely new age mysticism. We need to be both word and spirit. We can't understand the word without the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We can't experience the empowerment and the filling of the spirit unless we yield to, the King, to King Jesus and his gospel and allow him to do his deadly work in our lives and get rid of the things that are hindering us from hearing his voice, which means we need to be a people of the word. It means we need to be a people of prayer. It means we need to be a people of fellowship and it means we need to be a people that are about his mission, which is seeking and saving that which is lost. Nothing will inspire growth like beginning to share your faith. You know what causes growth is when we begin to lose relationships for the name of Jesus. What did the early the apostles say in the book of Acts? They celebrated and praised God after they were beaten that they were considered worthy of suffering for their king. That message has been absolutely eradicated in the church today. When Door of Hope began, this is how far I've drifted personally, and I always want to confess this to you guys as a church in closing, that we can really pray together. When Door of Hope began, I never went anywhere without my Bible. Because I was the amateur pastor. I had no seminary education. I had no master's degree nor PhD. I didn't even have a college education. All I had was a Bible, which according to the Reformation, seems to be enough traditionally if indeed you're inspired by the Holy Spirit that spiritual illumination is not dependent upon intellectual capacity. But of course, leading a church as it explodes, you begin to feel this pressure. I should be more educated. And is it wrong to pursue knowledge? Of course not. But knowledge, it says, endlessly learning, they never come to, they never come to know the actual truth. That's what Paul says about those that are, that, are, that are betrayed by the ways of the world. And what I found over time is that I used to go into Powell's bookstore, buy books, and set my Bible on the counter when I would pay for it. You know what? No one ever mocked me for it, but everyone referred to me in that season. And maybe it helped that I looked like a good white Jesus with my really long hair and flowing beard. And I did lose some power when I cut that off. I'm not going to lie. But there was... <laughs> There was a, and people would be like, what do you do? And I'd be like, I'm a church. And I just had that same mode that the disciples had. Come and see. Come and be a part of it. I was so convinced that your guys' testimony would be as compelling as anything that I say, that, that there was this communal desire to see people come to Jesus, and we all knew that we could do it better together than we could apart. And in those early years, we were baptizing hundreds of people. And the baptisms of gone down. They've, they've gone back up this year as evangelism has begun to become an important component. But what I realize is that what has not come back for me personally is the commitment to... I read scripture every day, but I do not read it like I did when I started Door of Hope. When I started Door of Hope, I would spend hours 
in the Word because I just wanted to know how to articulate who this Jesus is, and I refused to be shaped by the multitude of voices in the world. I wanted to be shaped purely by Jesus as guided by His Spirit because I know that there are a multitude of heresies that have risen into the church due to ecstatic experience or the pressures of society, and I said, I'm going to be a man of the Word. I'm going to hold to the, to the, the history of the church and 2,000 years of church history based upon this orthodoxy then the central thing there's lots of things I don't know and there's lots of things we can argue about but not the gospel and that commitment led to God blessing the church but it becomes a thing and the church gets to a certain size and now we've got to try to figure out how to protect what we've built and I just I found that over time what I did I began to tenaciously read every theologian when you hire a guy like Tim Mackey who's read literally everything there is on the planet to read you start feeling some pressure, and he would never put pressure on me. In fact, he always told me never to go to seminary. He's like, why would you go to seminary unless you want to teach as a professor? And I'm like, good, because I don't like people telling me what to do. <laughs> I tried. I went to Western, and Gary Brashears, I put in the cohort, I lasted one semester, and I'm like, you know what? I'm reading Moby Dick, and I just don't have time for all these other books right now. <laughs> I got the Bible and I have Ahab. I'm like, I'm seriously, I'm good. <laughs> but I think that this, this reality is I felt that pressure and I've, I, I started to kind of weigh out and I saw that my time in other people's thoughts about the Bible far surpassed my time in the Bible itself. And that's problematic. And I have no right for that to ever be the case if I'm going to lead this church as a servant leader. We need to be a people of the Word. We need to be a people of the Spirit. We need to be a people of prayer. And we need to trust that only God can save the lost. But I will say this. He wants to do it through you. He does. Because He's the Good Shepherd and we're His sheep. And may we hear His voice and may we follow Him and know Him as we follow Him and as we hear His voice. Amen? Let's pray.